Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with teacher and coach at Parkway Central High School, Ryan Banter. Thanks for tuning in to episode 157 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really pleased to get Ryan Banter on the podcast. And the reason uh, for getting Ryan on was um, was a couple of reasons, really. One was because he's working at a high school level uh, in the States uh, with large, very large numbers of athletes. So it was to appeal to the guys that listen to the podcast who maybe aren't working with the elite of the elite quite yet, um, but also to make them guys that are working with the elite maybe have something to think about with regards to what is going on um, below them at the maybe high school and college level. So in this podcast with Ryan, we discuss uh, warm-ups, especially warm-ups with large groups of athletes and making that as as simple as possible and achievable as possible, I guess. Um, we also discuss uh, that in terms of uh, running drills with, with large groups of athletes and how to ident- keep identifying those that maybe need uh, a little bit further attention. And also uh, wh- what goes on in the weight room for the high school uh, track athlete. Words are so important to kids. So if you call it general strength, they'll be like, ah, this doesn't really matter. It doesn't. But if you get it a fancy name, like we're going to improve your posture, we're going to buttress your posture, then all of a sudden you get a lot of buy But just before we get into the chat with Ryan, I just want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, and soon to be released, or already released, uh, Human Track. So I had a demo this week of the Human Track. Uh, so it basically combines the Xbox Connect with some uh, IMUs that get worn on the wrist and ankle. So it combines them two data streams um, to enable uh, sports scientists, s coaches to perform um, uh, screens and, and movement assessments. So it's a really cool bit of kit. Um, if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Human Track, uh, just visit humantrack.com um, and there's some um, there's hopefully going to be some videos shortly uh, and some validation stuff on there as well uh, from the guys at Valve Performance. Also, massive thanks to Forstex for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are looking for a software and hardware uh, force play solution, make sure you check out the guys at Forstex. It seems that everyone in the world is uh, is jumping on on Forstex, actually jumping on Forstex, literally, um, and through the help of, through the works of uh, Phil Graham Smith, who also appeared in the podcast, and Dr. Daniel Cohen, um, who is at episode 139. So if you do want to hear more about Forstex, make sure you check out them two episodes with Dr. Daniel Cohen and Phil Graham Smith. So over to the chat with Ryan. Hope you enjoy and would love any feedback uh, that comes my way. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Ryan Banter. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. I've been uh, following you and keeping up with your podcast for a while, so it's an absolute pleasure. Oh, don't. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyone that doesn't know who you are, 
Um, do you just want to give us a little bit of background on on you, what you do nine to five, um, a little, just a little bit of history about yourself? Sure. So for the people out there in the international community who don't know me, I, I uh, am a blogger and a high school track uh, and field coach out in the St. Louis area in a suburb of uh, Chesterfield, Missouri. And I've been coaching in the St. Louis area now for about 16 years and um, you know, also did some summer club track and field and, and stuff like that. Uh, ran college track uh, at the Division three level, so a smaller level. I, I would say I'm a frustrated sprinter who spent a lot of time hurt more than, than actually running, which is kind of one of those things that has been really motivating for me to, to become you know better for my athletes and people that I interact with. And so I've been teaching here also for about 11 years. And uh, before I got into all the, the training and track and field and cross country and American football before that, I uh, spent a lot of time um, working on political campaigns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what they say about politics uh, is true. It's a really dirty business. And I kind of was a little, you know, disillusioned with that. But, you know, I still felt like I wanted to give something back to the community. And uh, my old uh, track coach, who's now in the Hall of Fame here in the state of Missouri for track and field. He uh, has always been a, a good mentor of mine about how to run a program the right way and to do things the right way as a, as a man. And I felt, well, this political thing is not the direction I want to go. You know, maybe I would like to dabble in some coaching. And uh, 16 years later, here I am uh, at Parkway Central as a teacher and a coach myself and waking up every day excited and jazzed to to do this job and to work with young people, you know, it's, it's, it's great to have a career. And I don't know that many people can say this, but I know I can to have a career where I'm actually making a difference in a positive way on the lives of young people. So do you teach physical education or is it other subjects? Well, you know, so that's what everybody thinks, you know, so everybody thinks okay. uh, I'm a PE teacher. Uh, we we kind of joke, uh, the joke around, uh, you know, America is sometimes the uh, PE teachers, obviously are coaches, but a lot of times the history teachers are too. So they oftentimes call us history coaches <laughs> because, you know, some, some people may not know how to, to provide that balance with the, with the teaching and coaching. So from, you know, uh, seven thirty in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm a teacher. And then from, you know, basically three o'clock to six, six o'clock, I'm, I'm coaching every day after school. So that's kind of how, you know, I do it, you know, about 11 hours a day. So, so, what, so what, age, what age groups are you teaching? So currently I actually have fresh, freshmen in, and that's ninth grade here in the States. And so most of the kids are either 14 uh, to 15 years old. Um, so I kind of give them their introduction into the high school experience, which is really cool because they have a, a healthy fear of, of in respect, you know, for, for their educators. So you don't have to deal with some of the discipline problems that you might have to deal with with somebody who has a little bit more awareness and say, well, I don't know that I'm going to listen to you today or whatever. But, but uh, you know, these, these kids are, these kids are great, you know, and, and because they're so young, they, they also have a, a level of enthusiasm that's just infectious and, and kind of keeps, keeps you young, even though you look older every year, you still feel about the same, which is great. So and so so moving on to the coaching side, how what age the the kids that you coach? So everybody I coach uh, pretty much exclusively, with a few exceptions, are, are high school age kids. So everybody okay. from fourteen year fourteen years old up to even possibly nineteen. Um, I have consulted and helped a few people overseas. Um, one one gentleman that I helped coach was uh, Lion Martinez, who won the 
the you know masters in the 100 meter dash uh, world championship i guess it was last fall last late last summer last fall 2016 and a couple other people too just you know from time to time check in with me and and have just want some guidance or to bounce different ideas and so i'm always open to those type of things too but mostly high school age kids for the for the most part nice so one of the leading nicely into the the first thing i wanted to uh to chat to you about and that was and hopefully this will resonate with people who are out there because I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be a uh, a common not issue but challenge i guess mm-hmm. is uh coaching larger groups when it comes to sprinting so you just want to talk to us through a little bit about your experience in uh in them kind of scenarios and how you make the best of it. yeah so you know Every environment has its its challenges. So if you're a college coach or, you know, where kids are kind of running for scholarships or, you know, and they've got the, the situation of life and, and, and being an adult, that that's a challenge, right? And then as a professional situation, the tables kind of turn, you know, the, the athlete drives a lot of the coaching situation and, and the coach is kind of more, I wouldn't say, um, under the under their kind of control but they play more of an advisory role and naturally they probably should with high school coaches depending on the size of your program there are programs in my area that have 182 kids on their track and field team and we're and they only have you know eight coaches for 180 and i know that might sound like that's a good ratio but when you break it down that most of those kids are not in technical events they're either running distance or they're sprinting or people think they're sprinters you have usually a, a, a large group everybody thinks they can run the 100 meter dash um and <laughs> me, so i mean included yeah, well <laughs> me too i fooled myself for, for a long time thinking i could run track uh fast but yeah so for me one of the biggest things is, is you try to cast a wide net so the things you do you try to make sure that they benefit almost everyone in your program in a general sense first. So when we do our general warm-ups, we're doing things that all athletes could benefit from, even the throwers. Not that the throwers are going to go out there and do a mile and a half of low skips and bounding and, and sprinting and, and drills, but they're going to do a lot of those similar activities. So we always have a general warm-up that it, that it takes on pretty much the, the entire team. And so that way we're doing something together as a large group. There's a community there and um, they understand that these routines, are the, the general routine is pretty basic in what they're doing. And then from there, we usually have our team huddle. And then that's where we uh, will then split off into smaller groups where we do our drills. Um, and I'm a big drill guy. I think other than Franz Bosch, who wrote the book you know, called Running, where he's got all those drills, I think I might be the, the next the next guy in line for trying to be as creative and inventive with those and using those as a diagnostic tool and a a way to build special strength and to make an athlete more resistant. So with those groups, you could have 35, 40, 50 kids doing all of these drills at the same time. So using some of the stuff like, and you know, a lot of people like to poo-poo the army and the military, but one of the great things that the, the army and the military has done is get everybody in good posture, gets everybody in rows, and it has them be able to move in formation. And so for us to do that, you know, simple tricks like everybody knows every day the, the basic routine that we're doing. They have an understanding of that. The older kids help teach the younger kids those type of drills and activities. So when maybe you only have one or two coaches for 50 kids, you actually have like four or five other coaches 
who can help guide the athletes and, and they know that they're responsible for helping teach those drills and those activities. When we put the kids in the, into rows, we always make sure they're not in a lane, they're on a line. So that keeps the things a lot tighter. It keeps it a lot more strict in their movements. You can see imbalances if they're favoring one leg to another. And then we make sure that, you know, we're sending them off in intervals, you know. So when they go off, they know exactly, okay, at this point now our row goes. And then our row after that goes. And you have a 10 to 20 meter difference in between that. So it's not just this big mass where it looks like something out of the Lion King where you have the, you know, the, the animals charging down the valley and it's just this big chaotic mess of athletes. We, we are, we are hyperly vigilant on making sure that each one of those rows gets special attention from the coach as the coach, typically myself, follows those athletes through that progression of 20 to 30 meters of a drill that they're doing. And then we come back and then now the next group is on, you know, after that group's moved halfway through, they initiate their drill. And now instead of looking at 50 to 60 people, I'm looking at seven people, you know, at one time. And we make sure that they understand how important that is. And they get cued when they're supposed to go, either by a whistle or by voice or by distance. And so that way we always have our eyes on them and we can pay attention to them. A lot of times what I found with coaches is that with large groups, the warm-up time just is a jack-around period where kids are, are goofing around or coaches are talking about the terrible thing that a kid did at school that day. And for me, that's I feel like that particular period of time is where I have to be the most focused. Because if I send a kid off into a workout and they've got a limp, or they look like they're favoring something, or they're grimacing, that's a problem. But you'd be amazed with that many kids, once they know the drills that you're doing, they know that they need to be on a line, they know when they're cued to go, and they have their seven people that they're going with, and they have the returning athletes in front of them that can show them how to do it. You know, you can quickly get a lot of people through this stuff where it doesn't take hours and hours and hours. And then if there's an individual who has just grotesque mistakes, then my assistant coach will pull that athlete out or a senior captain of the team will pull that athlete out. And then they will individually work on that particular drill until it looks good enough to where it's reasonable to perform. Um, you know, and that's one of the big things when, when we look at acceleration, so one of the really cool things, I don't know if you guys have talked, you have talked to Carl Valley, and one of the things that, that he's done is he basically came up with a, a pattern of how you set up your acceleration by height and by lead leg. So then what happens is instead of having 60 kids get one block start in like a half an hour, because they know, okay, from this height to this height, this is my row. And then also my lead leg is the left leg. So this is the row I have for a block. It reduces switching the pedals around. It reduces moving the entire block backwards. And it just keeps the kids in a flow where they know the responsibility of the lane they're supposed to be in, what lead leg is in front, and then how tall the person is in their lane. It, and when you're doing large numbers of athletes out of the blocks, that little, little nugget of knowledge makes such a huge difference. It, it's cut down on my acceleration practice time. Now I can build in more, but it's cut it down by about 25% just by making those tweaks and setting that up ahead of time. And then the lanes that each kid uses is the same every time, no matter how fast or slow they are. So they immediately know where to go. So there's not a lot of decision fatigue 
or trying to organize this ahead of time. You just have to organize it once and then follow through after you do it that one time. And then kids understand that that's, that's how that gets done and it reduces the stress and difficulty of trying to teach blocks, which is obviously one of the most technical things we do in, in track and field, and obviously one of the most important things to set up the rest of the race pattern. And so that's been super useful and has really helped out a ton. And then the other thing is if I'm the only coach out there, there have been times where like in winter when we're not in the main part of the season, I'm the, I might be one of only two coaches out there with 40 kids. And so you'll have five or six different workouts going on. And so where you position the start of your workout is really important. So if you have short sprinters that are doing acceleration, you know, you, you reverse them and have them go down the opposite way of the straightaway on the 100. You have your long sprinters running 350s or 450 repeats. You know, you have them start on the curve. And uh, anybody who's a jumper doing plyometrics and they're on the inside of the turf and where they start their drills is right next to you. So that way you don't have a lot of lag time between um, communicating with somebody who's like 100 yards or 100 meters away from you. You know, they're all right there on top of you. And if you're inventive enough of saying, OK, I'd like to get all this stuff done, but I'm the only person here. So how can I get as close to the, the workout, the ideal workouts that I want to do and keep everybody within shouting range of me, how can I get that done? And then you could even add in a thrower group on top of that where they could be doing maybe low-level bounding plyometrics or they could be throwing, you know, uh, medicine balls and things like that. And so when you're there by yourself, as long as you plan ahead of time, hey, this is the human resource that I have, which is me and another assistant coach. How can I get the most bang for the buck? The other thing that I always think is interesting is that if you tie in the recovery times in between your sprinters, so the longer a sprinter goes, uh, if they're running a repeat 350 or a 300 or even a 250 or a 200, those recoveries are going to need to be a lot longer to ensure the quality of that sprint. So then in between those runners and those athletes, you might have short sprinters doing you know, flying uh, 20s or 10s or 20 meters or 30 meter accelerations or sled drives. And they, their time in between is going to be much shorter, which then allows you to, you know, train them within the recovery period of the longer sprinter who has this massive recovery. And so you can get their work, not the majority of their workout necessarily done, but you can get a large portion of their workout done and pay attention to them while your poor, unfortunate longer sprinter is over there catching air or getting water or foam rolling or whatever on their much longer recovery period. Another thing that we did was what we call a Baylor group, which is after the famous coach Clyde Hart's university, uh, Baylor University with Michael Johnson and Jeremy Warner. And with that group, when we have long, what I call long sprinters, I don't like to call them middle distance runners because when a sprinter hears distance, they automatically tune out. So we call them long sprinters. But anyway, our long sprinters and our, and our shorter distance runners who may be moving down from the 1,500 mile, um, we'll do a group where from time to time we'll train them together because that crossover or that combination zone of energy systems where there's a lot of anaerobic, anaerobic work being done simultaneously for a 400 hurdler, 400 dash, 800 runner, you can train those people together. And so we have uh, what we call a Baylor group where we blend those two groups together um, depending on the season and our athletes. So again, you're getting a lot of the same type of things that they need where the sprinter really helps the distance runner pick up 
speed and then the distance runner really helps um, hold the, the sprinter accountable to finish off the intervals. Now that's of course if those sprinters are supposed to be doing that type of training. You're not going to take somebody who's a quadriceps centric 60 meter dash looks like a you know 220 pound football player is probably not going to do that type of workout but for those other athletes that are in that blended zone you can combine them together and where we came up with that idea was when we were short on coaches and we had a ton of athletes so i had to coach all of the sprinters and all of the distance runners and i had a new coach who had never coached track and field before so we basically did what we call a two-on one-off uh, scenario. So what I did is that he would train alongside me with the kids or help me coach one day. And then the next day he and I would split. And one day I would give him the distance workouts and, and then I would take the, the sprinters. And then the second day we would be together again. And then on the, or the third day we'd be together again. And then on the fourth day we would split again, but we would reverse. So I would have the distance runners and he would have the sprinters. And so those kids would see us two days out of every three days. And he got to learn. His learning curve as a coach went way up. And my ability to still have my hands in the workouts of all of these athletes um, was two out of every three days. And then we were able to take those kids in that Baylor group and train them. And, you know, we had the second fastest four by four that year. And we were third in the four by eight that year. So I think that was a pretty darn good good season for us in Missouri high school track and field. And so that's when you look at large numbers, that's really, really important. And then in the weight room, we are able to handle large numbers where basically everybody's doing the exact same lift at the exact same time. And thankfully, we have nine power racks in, in our high school, which is really nice for the size of our school and, and where we're at. So all those kids know when they come in, the first thing they're doing is benching and squatting, powerlifting, whatever it may be, uh, you know, could be deadlift. And oftentimes we, we start our lifts out with, with a power clean or what I call a hellraiser, which is like a Olympic lift teaching drill that we do at the beginning of the season to give kids the basics. And so those four types of lifts are what they're doing at the beginning. So you can coach and teach the exact same movements to all of these athletes at the same time. And those workouts might not differentiate that much because they don't need to. Every athlete should be deadlifting. Every athlete should be squatting. Every athlete should be power cleaning, you know. And since they're doing all that stuff at the same time, you know, you can, you can catch mistakes. And they also have a ton of live visuals of returning athletes that know what they're doing. And then um, we make sure that they have a, a partner who is a returning athlete. So we have like a team leader, a rack leader. So there's always somebody at each one of those nine racks that's experienced that can help teach them to lift and show them how to do it the right way. And then when they're not lifting, they can go in there and help spot and manage what's going on as a miniature coach. And so those things have all been very, very, very helpful with managing a large number of athletes. And um, from, a, from a coaching management standpoint, so outside the track, outside the weight room, Another thing we run into with large numbers of athletes is you get the parade, uh, what I call the baton death march, where all the kids want to come up to you and tell you how they're going to be late to practice, they have to leave early, or you know they think their leg is going to fall off. And so then what ends up happening, and a lot of coaches who are listening to this, I'm sure they've experienced the same thing. They're just like, man, and it puts you in such a bad mood, you're grumpy, you're cranky, 
and you have no time to react to how to set up a practice for them to give them a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, or to get them started earlier or to abbreviate their warm-up. You can't do any of that because they basically just told you like you know, two minutes before we're about to get into practice. So one of the management things we've done is we've set up a Google Doc where they go to a Google survey page and they fill out if they need to leave early, if they're going to need to come late, or if there's something wrong with them physically that they need to talk to us about. And then all my coaches have access to that, and all the kids can punch that in at any time, because they all got cell phones, and they can punch that in at any time and send that information into me. And the rule is is that they have to send it in by like 1.30 at the latest, because that gives me an hour to adjust whatever plan they need and also get myself in the right mindset when I talk to them and not chew them out because I didn't know about this injury that's been lasting for six weeks, you know. And it puts me in a way better mood in practice. And then you don't have that weird lag time where you have this march of all these athletes telling you all this bad news. And the assistant coaches see it too, so then they can plan whatever technical side of things they're going to do for the day with that particular athlete. And they're aware. And so we're not surprised. We're ready to go. Everyone's accounted for. And it really makes things a lot smoother. And that's been a huge help um, in terms of team management on the on the outside of practice stuff. So so, so with that, with such a large group of kids, yeah. how are you – I know we've talked about how you've kind of structured the warm-up so you can actually evaluate these, these kids kind of pre-session. But on a, on a more global scale, how are you evaluating – these kids with obviously the amount of, of kids that there are and in a high school setting where I'm guessing, although there might be, like you say, nine power acts, but there's not unlimited funds like there would be a big college or, you know, or something similar. How are you doing that? Absolutely. So when we have the first week of practice, we take them through a, a series of tests and those tests um, are, you know, the standard USATF test, the, the standing 30, the flying 30, a standing long jump, a five repeat bound, alternating bound, a vertical leap. And then we add in and then a med ball toss or a, we actually do a shot put. So it's always the same. We do an overhead back shot put toss, you know, double hands. And, um, and then we accumulate that data over time. And so two things, A, you see where they're not really strong or, you know, technically proficient, you know, maybe they don't know how to jump or bound, so we can address that. They may not know how to accelerate, but they have a fast flying 30, so then we know, okay, this kid's going to need a lot more time accelerating, or maybe they're just not a 100-meter burner, maybe they're a 200, 400 person, or they're a, a triple jumper. Um, you know, and then we can see power output. Can they throw, um, and do some of those types of basic things with the USATF. And then we gather all that data and each coach is responsible for a station. And then we do, I would say we do half of those stations in the first day. And then in the second day, we come back and try to do the remaining of those. And then later in the week, after a day of active recovery, we'll come back and do a softball throw or a turbo jab throw because not everybody has a turbo javelin or a javelin throw. And so we have them throw the softball for to see if they can throw the javelin. And we'll do either a 45-second test to test speed endurance or we'll do a mile test if they're like a returning distance runner. And then we have like the mini hurdles and the foam hurdles and then regular hurdles. And we'll do like a hurdle skill challenge to see their mobility, but also see if they naturally have the ability to do a lead trail 
And so not only are we figuring out where they're strong or weak, we're also figuring out where they probably should be put to start the season, where they can benefit the team, but also have immediate success. And then outside of practice, our trainer is a really great, heavily involved trainer. He's a good dude. And um, he's able to um, do uh, the functional mobility screens, and he'll do those in the offseason so that if there's something that's really alarming with the functional mobility screen, he'll, he'll, he'll see that, and then we can address it before the kid ever steps onto the track by giving them a package of drills that don't require any equipment to do on their own. Um, either before practice or after the, a weight room session in the winter. And that's been incredibly valuable. And then the last thing that we do to kind of evaluate large groups is we have a questionnaire where we have them answer a series of questions, some of it being basic information. But the more important stuff is what are your interests are, what are your goals, what, how, do you, how would you describe yourself in seven words, what's your favorite quote, you know, what, you know, who do you admire the most in sports and why? And we gather all this information and it's amazing. Kids will be very honest. If there's a, there's the word lazy on there, you know, they'll circle lazy if they're lazy <laughs> and they usually aren't lying. You know, very uh, hardworking kids don't ever say they're lazy. Lazy kids will tell you they're lazy. And so you kind of, you, you kind of learn that kind of stuff about them. Um, you know, what we found out, a question that we've actually had to add on to that form is, you know, what is your eyesight? Is your eyesight 20-20? Do you need glasses? Do you wear contacts? Um, especially if we have distance runners, that sometimes they might not wear their glasses. And if they can't see, they'll, we've got a 5K course on our campus, and they'll trip and fall and hurt themselves. And we've had a, we've had a ton of athletes, you know, not tell us that and then come to find out. It's like, well, I'm blind in my right eye. And in my 15 years that that's happened, or in my 15 years as a coach, that's happened more than three times. So, you know, it's like, all right, that's something that we probably need to have on there so we know, A, we need to tell this kid they need to wear their glasses, but B, that has all sorts of repercussions on how they see things spatially, how you describe things to them, uh, and then they're just their general safety. And so that's, that's how we kind of try to gather as much information. And I mean, I read through that as if that was the Holy Bible. You know, I make sure I read every kid's in detail um, because I want to know stuff about them. I want to be able to make an instant connection with them. But I also want to do the best that I can to, to keep them safe throughout the season because kids come in way less prepared in America than they've ever been. I mean, when they say we have an obesity epidemic, that's, that's a real thing. You know, kids are spending more and more time on the couch, and we can't do nearly as much as we could do 15 years ago. You know, and I know I sound like the old guy, the old crabby guy in a rocking chair, you know, you know, but it's, it's, that's a, it's a truth. And if you don't recognize that it's a truth, you're going to be very frustrated because you're going to have a lot of athletes injured. So we hope with the performance evaluation, the functional movement evaluation, and then the psychological evaluation, we get a lot of data that will help us point the kids in the right direction, learn a lot about them. And none of that really costs that much money. If you have a track, you can do all the USATF testing. If you have a piece of paper, you can do the psychological testing. And if you have one guy in your entire school that's done a functional mobility certification, they can do that and then put it together a bunch of drills. And all that stuff is free. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ryan. So hope you are enjoying part one. 
So in part two, we discuss uh, plyometrics and a lot about plyometrics and how uh, they can be periodized, uh, especially for the high school athlete. But just before we get into part two, I want to say another big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So I was having a chat with a couple of former uh, podcast guests over the last week and discussing Fatigue Science and their fast uh, solution, which is a basically a scheduling tool. So what happens is you would give your schedule over to the, the guys at Fatigue Science to pop into their uh, software and that would basically predict um, your readiness um, given the amount of sleep that you're going to have during the schedule and what it will do is recommend uh, times for sleep during that during that schedule to maximize uh, the readiness on the back end so ready for competition so if you are interested in anything to do with fatigue science pop over to fatiguescience.com uh, and check out what them guys have to offer so over to part two with ryan hope you enjoy and again would love any feedback so I just want to touch on some of the the stuff that you do in the uh, in the weight room in the gym. Sure. So wh- where do these kids start when they end the team, and how do you how are you progressing? Again, I suppose it comes back to the the size of the group. So mm-hmm. how are you managing progression? I know you said that you're obviously sticking to the basics because everyone needs to do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. but. How's that? How's that managed? And I'm probably not explain this properly, but how is that managed with that big group in actually knowing when and where to kick these kids on and move them on to the the next progression? Sure. So the first thing is is that every athlete that enters into my program, we have a basic routine that is a lot of exercises, but they all are what I would say are the primary lifts that an athlete will do throughout their career through sport. And there's probably anywhere from eight to 10 lifts that they will do upper body on one day and lower body on the next day. And um, we, in the off season, in the winter, we'll lift four times uh, a week in the winter and they'll get upper body twice, lower body twice. And um, they also have, we try to have some sort of Olympic lift in there for them and there'll obviously be different variations of that but it's very basic and then pretty much pretty much everyone in the program does some sort of variation of that you know because you have different weights and measures you have different bars you have different uh you know different weights you can use that and so even the most basic kid the weakest kid on your team can still grab some dumbbells and do a dumbbell bench press you know, um, and uh, so so they all have that basic routine. And then from there, and that, that phase is usually about six weeks. And then if I have them there for six weeks and they're showing up, you know, I would say 75% of the time or better, then after that six weeks is over, we would then rotate to what I would have as three-week blocks depending on their discipline. So that lifting becomes more specific to what they're trying to do as an athlete and everything progresses off of the basic the basic lift so if they're doing you know what i call a hellraiser which is you know three high pulls a power clean a jerk and then they press it behind the back and then do it you know a jerk again from behind the neck and then reset and repeat you know they've learned all the movements that they're going to need to learn for pretty much every other olympic lift in every other phase after that we just break it up 
and then we of course raise the intensity and drop the number of pulls that they're doing um, and I know that for high performance people that may not be ideal because you're trying to stay at a level of readiness and intensity all year long but with high school athletes and youth and developmental athletes they need to spend a period of time of just learning how to move the bar through the movement over and over and over again to hardwire good movement patterns and also to improve their you know ligament strength and their connective tissues and the knees and the joints and uh, tendons and things like that need to improve and those things don't improve as quickly as you can make a muscle grow you know so you know those are types of things that we do at the beginning everybody does it even my cross-country girls my cross-country girls are in there deadlifting doing the hellraiser bench pressing squatting doing all of those lifts and then as we move forward it becomes more specific to them um and so if they're a, a quadricep centric sprinter they're spending more time on both legs and, and doing things that are quadricep centric if they're a hamstring centric sprinter they're then going into doing more unilateral things you know where their single leg or stability type activities um, are blended into their lifts and but every group of athletes goes in a basic progression so we go from a, a basic what i call posture buttressing so i don't want to say it's general strength again when you words are so important to kids so if you call it general strength they'll be like ah this doesn't really matter it doesn't but if you get it a fancy name like we're going to improve your posture we're going to buttress your posture then all of a sudden you get a lot of bias and so they have a good posture they have good core they have good connective tissue and then from there depending on what they need some kids need a little bit extra um, cross-section of muscle we may go to hypertrophic as a phase then we go to maximal strength as a phase and then from there we'll have um, a choice we can do a stability phase you know where they're doing more things that are more proprioceptive or we will do what I call a ballistic phase where they're lifting the bar as, as fast as they can and, and bar velocity becomes the most important aspect of what they're doing we don't even measure the weight that's on the bar anymore we get a stopwatch out and we time how long it takes for them to complete a set and so they have a partner one they have a group of three they'll have a partner that has a stopwatch the person who's lifting the weight and then the person who's spotting them and once that bar comes unracked and that movement starts for the first time if it's a bench or a squat or whatever then the, then they, they get the stopwatch out click they do the lift bang 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 and they, they stop the watch and we're trying to pr through and we make sure that it's full range of motion and the and the groups are supposed to help keep them accountable and then us as coaches pay attention to that too and um that's those are kind of the the progressions that we do in the weight room and then we recycle that um throughout the year you know we don't try to stay in a phase where we're getting diminishing returns if we see an athlete gets you know stale um we, we won't be afraid to change it after three weeks but if we see improvement after three weeks we'll still keep going until we don't up to six weeks and the athletes kind of know that and then all of the phases they know where they're going because i put that up on the wall at the beginning of the winter so they understand we're doing these lifts right now but in six weeks we're going to be doing this lift and then in the next six weeks after that i've got this lift and then that helps buy in too because they know there's a direction there's a plan and that's where we're headed now we don't have to be wedded to that you know if a kid needs something different than what's on that plan we will of course have that conversation and move them in a different direction but typically 
in my experience, you, you cast a wide net, you do a lot of things that a lot of athletes need, and a lot of athletes will improve and move forward, and then you can get a little bit more specific for very unique opportunities that an athlete might present as you get to know them. So one thing that I wanted to move on to that sure. is something that you've um, something that you've written quite a bit about, and that's uh, plyometrics and yeah. the, the periodization of plyometrics. And I'd just like to touch on that. And obviously, following the theme of the the high school athletes that you're working with, but mm-hmm. maybe then um, pull that out a little bit to uh, athletes maybe further along their journey, and mm-hmm. just see how that differs. Um, if if you could expand on that, that'd be that'd be superb. Yeah. Well, so for, for, you know, in the article that I wrote, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a progression mostly for, for high school kids. And, and one of the things I, I believe in is, is that it's okay for all athletes at all stages to go back to the basics. And so we will do a, a large amount of in-place plyometric jumping with our athletes. Um, and again, you cast a wide net. You can stand in the middle of the circle of all these athletes and they're doing, you know, pogo hops straight off their feet, all circled around you. And as you spin around the group, you can see everybody, how they're landing, whether they're landing correctly or not. And you're developing again, you're building up the the tissues in the foot, you're strengthening those tissues and they're low enough amplitude where the athlete's not going to get broken from that. You know, plyometrics is a great thing. But I would say above all of the things you can do for an athlete, plyometrics might be the first thing you would scratch out of a plan, you know, just because of the nature of it and how much it puts a load on the body. And so we always want to be careful to make sure that athletes are landing correctly and doing things right. Because as you move through, like if you're recycling on the back end and, you know, on the back end of the season, you know, maybe that phase right before the championship phase, you're doing a lot of depth jumping and, and real intense plyometrics, you know, getting back to the basics builds a nice recovery. It forces the body to see something different. And they might have learned some bad habits that you just forgot about because you're so used to seeing this athlete every day that you are paying attention to the whole athlete as opposed to everything below the knee on a pogo hop. And as a coach, it allows you to go back and reevaluate that. So we always start with in-place plyometrics to begin with. And then as we move out from that, then we start to do some multi-jump routines, which involve, you know, some low hops over over hurdles or cones, um, where we're working on projecting the center of mass. And we're working on, you know, that, that initial first pop off the ground with a little bit higher amplitude. And then from there, we go to endurance bounding. So now instead of hopping over, you know, five low hurdles now we're we're going out and we're doing you know contacts over 20 30 40 yards um depending on of course the athlete's ability and you know we're doing right right lefts left left rights um we're doing alternating bounding and with the endurance bounding you're moving forward there's a vertical and horizontal component to it you've got additional speed that you now have to bring with it we don't like to do a lot of plyometrics from just a standstill in the endurance uh bounding portion we usually like to do a 10 to 15 meter run-in where an athlete can get into rhythm and then perform it so they have some velocity to go with it and i feel like when you give them a little bit of velocity on the front end or a little bit of energy on the front end that simulates more of what an athlete would do 
um, when they're actually running at full speed. And then after that, then we do some, if, if they're able to do this, because again, not all athletes can do this, that's where we would then throw in depth jumping after that. And not all athletes will go through all of these progressions because they're not ready to do that. They're not ready to, to hit some of those things or they're not landing correctly. And so therefore, you know, there's no need to rush a young athlete when it comes to plyometrics. If they're doing pogo hops for, you know, an entire year because they, they just can't figure it out, then that's where you got to stay. You know, you don't, you don't move them on with bad mechanics to a more intense jump because they're going to get, the, you know, stress fractures, they're going to get knee issues, uh, tendon issues, and that's just not where we want to be. And so that's kind of my progression. So we go from in-place jumps to, you know, multi-jump routines, so standing triples, standing longs, to endurance bounding, and then to depth jumping. And with higher-end athletes that can contact the ground, you might not need to do the basic routine, but I would say all sprint coaches during a transition phase should probably go back to that low level bounding and that should be a part of their program as long as their athlete isn't hurt, you know, in a transition phase. You should still have that give the athlete a break. And I would also argue you don't need to you don't need to do plyometrics every week of every season. You know, you could you could blend it in for two weeks out of every three and then take a break from it on that third week, which could be a recovery week. You know, and you also for a higher level athlete could align the theme of your plyometrics with whatever they're doing. So if that first week is maximal speed, then you probably want to do some very quick endurance bounding that requires a fast lead in and then a pop, 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 left, right, left, right, left, right, or right, right, left, 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 you know, because that's what simulates that type of action the best for the theme that you're trying to get. And then the next week when you're trying to do power, then that's where you might do the more, you know, power-orientated multi-jump routines or depth jumps. And then on the recovery week, you may just do low-level bounding or uh, in-place in place jumps, or you take it out of the program for that week entirely and let the athlete get some rest. And so that with high-level athletes, I think we can do. And the thing is, is if an athlete is making progressions without plyometrics, you may not even need to do it necessarily. And um, again... Then it comes down to if they're a hamstring or quadriceps-centric athlete. So with a higher-level athlete, a quadriceps-centric athlete is going to get a lot out of multi-jump routines from a standing start because they live and die off of pushing that ground incredibly hard, you know, working on that zero step, that rise time out of the blocks, shortening that out and driving out explosively. Where a hamstring-centric athlete is going to get a lot more out of endurance bounding where they're forced to pop, 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 pop. Another thing that I discovered is you can kind of tell who's a hamstring-centric athlete and a quadriceps-centric athlete by how they triple jump. Now, of course, you need an athlete that's mature enough to be able to do repeat triples. Um, but if they're a single-arm triple jumper, they tend to be more often a hamstring-centric sprinter. And if they're a double-leg triple jumper, they are double, sorry, double arm triple jumper. They tend to be a quadricep centric because they're they're spending more time pushing into the ground and working the earth than they are just being neural and elastic. 
And when you have that information, you should time up whatever they're doing to, to improve them. One of the things that I found really interesting when it comes to the plyometrics and planning it out for the year is that Andreas Bim, you know, is when he talked about, you know, training his athletes, and he's obviously the coach of uh, Aries Merritt, he talked about how he would work on the athlete's weaknesses in the off season and try to improve those things. But then in season, you want them to be doing the things they feel most comfortable with and can benefit them the most. So when you're in a competitive season, you know, a hamstring-centric sprinter should be doing those endurance quick bounds, pop, 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 pop over distance. And a quadriceps-centric sprinter should be doing those very powerful multi-jumps from zero movement, you know, again, because you want to work on their strengths. And then in the off-season, you can blend in all these other routines and give their body exposure and try to improve some of those things they're not really good at, you know. And, um, you know, again... Being on top of those athletes is really important, too. There's a really cool program that Malden um, just came out with called Athlete RS or S or SR, sorry, SR. And in there, they get this data from these athletes where they color code every day. The athlete comes in and they've got a, a human outline of a body with all the muscles. And then they push in on the little different spots on the athlete's body that they have on this computer screen and they do like green, yellow, or red. And then you can see, and it only takes them five minutes to do this, and you can see over time what your workout is doing to the athlete and where their pain and soreness is is being targeted. And so as a coach, then with, with something like plyometrics where naturally you can get kids pretty hurt if you're not being wise about it, um, you can see that and monitor that over time and get that data in real time. And um, you know when to back off and, and when to go back to it. Now, where we place plyometrics, that's another thing that's kind of interesting. So when we start our plyometric routines in the high school season, the in-place bounding or the in-place jump, sorry, that first phase, we put that at the end of practice. That becomes part of our cool down. So instead of having an athlete go out there and run two ugly laps around the track and they all get the calf cramps, you've probably seen that happen and they're rolling on the ground and they've got their teammate stretching them out. We, we do those low-level bounding or in-place jumps to improve that athlete's ability to recover and then kind of realign things neurologically. At Altus, they call that rudiment. They have like a series of in-place jumps that they do called rudiment. And that's really been beneficial to us because obviously the athlete is still popping off the ground and doing things elastic. It's helping kind of cool them down because it's not super intense. And then as the season moves along, we slide the plyometrics more to the front of practice. And so when you depth jump, that's got to be the first thing. If you're depth jumping, that's the first thing your athlete's doing in a practice, period. You know, and um, if you're real smart about how you do it, you can even get a PAP effect out of that that can then help your athlete either accelerate or run some maximum velocity flies. Um, if you're uh, of the mindset of Tony Tony Holler or Chris Corfist, where they do a lot of those repeat flies as a big part of their program. And so as the season moves along, the plyometrics move more to the front of your practice more to the beginning of your practice because it requires that central nervous system to be fresh. And uh, we found a lot of success with that also. Superb. Well, 
<clears throat> really appreciate your insight and I think we could probably go on and on and have a pretty kind of a bunch of questions that could sure. take you well, well into your evening. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm going to do is, um, is just ask you where people can, uh, where people can get more information about you and uh, your work and, and the stuff like you said at the start that you've been writing about um, and, and posting online, where can, where's the best place for people to, to uh, catch up with you? So, from a, from my website is uh, the sprinters it's sprinterscompendium.com and that's where uh, I also am, am selling and promoting my book that I just released in August and uh, it's 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 a bible of sprinting it's 763 pages um, it's got over 50 contributors from around the world of track and field uh, there's basically a coach that's contributed to the book on every continent with the exception of the one with penguins on it and uh, we, and, I, and, I, and I tried to do that so that everybody had somebody that they had a connection with that they instantly know is a respectable coach. And it's really been amazing, that process. And it's taken me five years to put the book together. But um, I've been getting great feedback on that. And so everybody can pick that up at this, the you know, sprinterscompendium.com. And then I wrote a lot for uh, Joel Smith's uh, Just Fly Sports site. And then Speed Endurance is kind of where I, I contribute the most outside of, of, obviously, the book that I just got done um, writing. And, um, you know, everybody, I'd love for you guys to pick it up. And uh, we should have a Kindle version coming sooner. So for my international friends um, that are like, man, this four-and-a-half-pound book, you know, it's, it's <laughs> like you gotta, you got to sell your, you know, your half your house to, to pick it up. I, I hear you and I understand, so we're hopefully going to get a Kindle version. But everybody really likes the print book, and you know I've gotten great feedback on it. And again, it's you're not really buying that book for me; you're buying that book for the differing opinions and the 50 plus coaches who have been so generous to share all their knowledge and love about the sport of sprinting uh, with me to create what I would say is the most exhaustive resource ever done on the topic. And so I hope people uh, find it to be. Uh, as beneficial for regular coaches that are at the high school level and, and people who are coaching in the university level or for the national teams and, and Olympians. And we've, we tried to, you know, again, make a book for all. Mm -hmm. And your Twitter handle is the same as the website? Yeah, so it's 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 uh, Sprinters Compend. Uh, there's no okay. yum at the end of that, but that's my, <laughs> yeah. my Twitter handle. And then anybody can catch me on Facebook at, you know, Ryan Banta. Um, so they can, they can find me there too. And so that's the two places where I, I do most of my, uh, my business is on Facebook and then on, on Twitter and then along with those websites that I had mentioned. Superb. Well, honestly, really appreciate your, your time and your insight into, uh, into what you do. So really appreciate it. And, uh, and we'll no doubt keep in touch. Thanks buddy. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody got something out of this and I've been a long time fan. So I'm super excited to have been a part of this and it's been fun. I hope we get to do it again sometime. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks Ryan. Really appreciate awesome. it. Cheers mate. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 157 of the Pacey performance podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ryan. So a massive thanks to him for giving up his time and taking us through what he does at Parkway Central High School with his, uh, with his high school athletes. Also big thanks to Val Performance, Force Dex and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So we've got some very, very exciting guests coming up over the next two, three, four weeks. 
So I'm, I can't wait to bring you them guys. Uh, I know you'll get so much from it and it's some people that I've been wanting to get on for a long, long time. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you all soon.